The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them with me the book of Jude. The book of Jude. If you ask me what chapter, look at your neighbor and they'll help you find it. But uh, Jude is where we're going to be. There are several New Testament letters that, as you would well know, are one chapter or single chapter books. So one of them we studied back three or four months ago. That is the book of Philemon. The others that are in that same category would be Jude, obviously, as you can see it now, if you've gotten to it, also 2 John and 3 John. And each of those are what I would refer to sort of kind of as postcard-sized letters. Uh, they just don't take up a lot of space in our New Testaments, but I promise you, as hopefully we realize from the book of Philemon after about nine weeks, uh, there's a whole lot to be discovered in those books. And I honestly do not think we hit top side or bottom even in those nine weeks, so nonetheless... I'm not even going to begin to claim that we're going to cover the entirety of the book of Jude today because that's not my intention. Uh, I don't have the liberty right now to teach a class continually, but each time that I do have an opportunity to teach here for the next however long it takes, probably four or five weeks, we will be coming back to the book of Jude, Lord willing. Uh, it is a very pertinent book. It applies itself very well to today's times, to some of the issues that we face and more than that, perhaps you might even say to some of the issues that the world faces that we are being forced to face because the way the world handles morality. As a matter of fact, if you want to put a heading up above the book of Jude, there are several ways to look at it. Uh, Jude wanting to write about what he called the common salvation, but had to in turn change his mind, or his mind was changed for him by the inspiration of God, in that he would write instead about the common salvation, but about what he referred to, and we often quote as earnestly contending for the faith. So most likely, if you know anything about the book of Jude, and I stand in this same category, that's probably what you know. You know that phrase that's taken out of verse 3, that we ought to earnestly contend for the faith. And so before we go any farther to actually discussing the book, and we're kind of going to do what we did with the last book, sort of, kind of. We're going to look at it from its passages, and then we're going to back away and look at some of the principles and some of the pictures that we can find from it. That's kind of the threefold way we'll view this book as, as well. But I want to get some of your ideas, some of your thoughts. What does it mean to earnestly contend for the faith. What do you think about when you think about someone being instructed, and that's us, we're the someones, that ought to earnestly contend for the faith? What should we be talking about? What should we be doing? Preach the word as the Bible said. That's generally the place that I go. Anything else? So what? Defend the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. And I think generally, and, and we've already summarized all of this, is that we have to stand up for something. Uh, and many times, the main reference that I've gone to in the past, and perhaps most of us do, when we hear someone say or quote that part of verse 3, and it's just a little phrase there, 
that we ought to earnestly contend for the faith, the first thing I think about is defending the gospel. You know, what is it that the gospel stands for? What does it mean? Of course, you and I would relay that. We would say, well, the gospel pertains to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And that by understanding that ourselves and in turn teaching that to others and even on this level defending that before the world, then what we allow them to learn is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the shedding of Jesus' blood, obviously, that we then have an opportunity to salvation, which is found by gaining the forgiveness of sins. Okay, and that's just kind of the ways you could boil this out. And I think primarily as I've viewed this book in the past, that's most likely where I've gone. I've said, well, you know, we, what, you know what? We have to stand up for the gospel. We have to stand up for the truth. And if someone is teaching or preaching something that is contrary to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, if someone is coming up with what they might call there, and we would refer to it probably as a plan, of salvation, if that doesn't mesh and match directly with the Word of God, then I, as a Christian, ought to stand up for that and ought to make correction or help others make corrections in their lives to make sure their thinking is right, to make sure they're on the right path toward heaven, to make sure they understand how important it was that, yes, there was a death, a burial, and more importantly, even a resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that's typically the way that we consider earnestly contending for the faith. That's probably the main ways that we would consider that, at least I do, in that. So it really summarizes in saying that I think we ought to stand up for the gospel. What do we mean when we talk about the gospel? How do we define that word, maybe? The Bible, uh, the Bible but it is the good news of anything, in this case, we're talking about the gospel or the good news of Christ. And if someone gets news about Christ wrong, does that take away its goodness? Yes, it does. As a matter of fact, in the Galatian letter, Galatians chapter 1, you can read verses 1 through 9 to get a lot of this, but Paul talks about those who preach what he referred to as another gospel, which is not another. Now, is it possible to have another gospel? No, not according to Scripture. Now, we oftentimes refer to folks and we say, well, this person over here that's a part of this faith or this denomination or this group or, or maybe just this individual, he preaches a different gospel from God. He preaches another gospel, something that's foreign to the Bible. The truth is they can't preach another gospel because to put the word another in front of that takes away the gospel itself, meaning it's no longer good news. If someone preaches a gospel that leads them toward Christ in the wrong direction or on the wrong path, that gospel itself is no longer good news. And so what Jude is writing here about, and he claims that he desires to do that and claims that we should, is that we ought to, verse 3, Beloved, I gave all diligence unto you, to write unto you of the common salvation which was needful for me to exhort you unto to exhort you that ye ought to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered for all the saints. Now, I want to give you kind of an outline. You've got some sheets in front of you. We'll fill out the, the major headings, at least, of that outline uh, very quickly right now. The, the main ones, at least. You didn't get a sheet. Any more sheets? Scott's got some. Hold your hands up. 
we got ahead or behind some of you, I think. That's right. That's right. According to the world and according to their apparent gospels, and that's using it really loosely, they must, at least that they imply, that these men did not preach the same things, whether it be Peter, Paul, Christ, whatever, then in order for it to be another gospel, there has to be some contradiction between them. So if you've got your sheets here, the main heading points, these are the words that go in those blanks. I'll give you that up front because we'll be a few weeks before we get around to all of this. But basically, verses 1 and 2 pertain to what I would call the address, okay? This is the address, and this is the same address, very similar at least, to what you see by, say for the example, the Apostle Paul, similar to what Peter would write, similar to what James would write, obviously Jude being the penman, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but he addresses these people in a certain way. And it basically could also be called a greeting because that's basically what he does. He greets these people, albeit Jude's definition of a greeting is not nearly as lengthy or extended as many of the New Testament writers, particularly Paul. I've told you before that you want to get a basic introduction to a Bible book, a New Testament book, particularly when it is something that is penned by Paul, inspired of God. A lot of times if you'll read the first three to eight verses, you'll get a whole lot about what that book is. You'll typically get the person who's writing it, in that case for the example is Paul, You'll get the place to whom they're writing, the people to whom they're writing. You'll get the purpose for which they're writing. You'll get a lot of information or really an introduction to a book by looking at generally the first three to eight verses. In this case, his address, Jude's address, comes in in only verses one and two. Then from that point, basically verses three through four, and you've got this on your sheet, probably already filled out now, but basically, verses 3 through 4, he goes over his aim. What I mean with the word aim, you know I've got to put A's on all of this, but what I mean by the word aim. This is the purpose. This is the point. Jude, in writing this, tells them up front, I'm not going to beat around the bush, this is what I wanted to get across, and this is what I'm going to get across. We might call that the subject of that paragraph, or in this case, the subject of this short postcard size letter. Then from that point, and this is where the book really starts breaking out, basically verses 5 through 16, he makes an argument. And I'll tell you up front, I've read every New Testament letter, I've read the Old Testament as well, but particularly comparing these to the New Testament letters, there is not a more scathing rebuke in the entire New Testament than what Jude does right here. Jude does not beat around any bushes. He doesn't speak behind any veils. He doesn't use any language in the way that he argues things where someone walks away and says, well, I'm not exactly sure what he said and I'm certainly not sure why he said it. Jude is very, very, very clear and concise with his arguments. And then from that point on, and this is the rest of the book really, verses 17 through 25, 
he takes off with an admonition. Now, an admonition is just my way of explaining that he admonishes these people. Now, if you admonish someone, that sometimes is seen as being negative, but it's not always that. It could be negative, it could be positive, it could be a mix between the two. To admonish someone is to make clear and concise uh, closing arguments, almost you might say that, but it's to look someone in the eye and say, okay, here's what I've taught, here's what I've explained, here's what I intended, and now here's what you have to do with that. And that's really what he does. So in a sense, you could almost, if you just kind of ran this together, you could divide this book into two halves. One's the argument and one is the admonition. There's some positivity that's found in the latter part, but he does that by giving us some extremely disturbing pictures of the way that God sees men. And I'll give you the uh, kind of the secret behind the book and the way that God sees man when they are immoral. And more than that, sees man how he or she views the immoral. Okay? This book is not only about correcting some issues with immorality that may and perhaps be going on inside of the church, to whom this is addressed, the church in general, but this also deals with the view that the church has on the immoral. Now, what do we often do? I'll have to lead you into this to get you to think what I'm thinking probably, but what do we often do when we think about the uh, immoral world. We think immo about immorality in the world. What do we generally do with that? We say, well, they need to stop and they need to keep that out of here. And I'm talking about the church. They need to stop what they're doing and they need to keep that out of here. But if they're not going to stop, and I, I don't think we all draw this conclusion, but I think it's more and more what has come up, what we've come up with. If they're unwilling to stop, as long as they'll keep it out, it'll be all right. I, I, I wish you'd stop that sin. And I wish you'd get out of that lifestyle, whatever it is. Get out of those habits. But if you'll keep it out of the church then the church will just stand over here on the corner and say, well, I hate that y'all are living that way, but I'm glad it's not us. Jude addresses this book in such a way which says we can't do that. If you flip on the evening news or scroll through any source on a phone or tablet or whatever you want, over and over again today, what are we being told our attitude ought to be toward immorality or worldly things just accept it just tolerate it just don't say anything about it just be careful don't offend these people if you want to be Christian and you want to be moral and you want to be upright in your eyes or in your God's eyes then you go ahead and do that but on the other hand, we're going to do whatever we want to do and live our lives whatever, we, whatever way we want to live, and you had better not say anything about it. Matter of fact, there's a group in the middle that doesn't live immoral lives, that are not Christians, that will stand in the middle and get a fight going between the two groups. And guess who will be blamed for the issue and the division between those two groups? The Christian. 
Now, believe it or not, that's the type of things that Jude is addressing. Jude is basically letting these people know, and we're going to see this in the text in just a few moments. But Jude basically says, look, it was my intention, it was my hope, it was my desire. I can imagine Jude had been out in the field all day. He comes in from the field, he gets himself a piece of bread, maybe a loaf of this or that, and maybe a glass of water. And he's sitting there, he drinks that, and he eats his bread down, and he turns and he grabs his uh, papyrus or scrolls, and he grabs his quill pen, and with a smile on his face, he starts to write a letter which he intends to write about the common salvation that is able to be existent. And he wants and he desires to write a letter to his brethren to remind them how wonderful it is that Christ died for us and how awesome it is that now knowing that Christ has died for us, that salvation is available to all men and it's common among men and that we all agree that salvation is available, common among men. And so all our efforts are put into now just going to that person out in the world and just knocking on their door, maybe even literally. Or catching them out in the field and just saying, hey, look, did you know that Jesus died for you? Did you know that Jesus shed his blood for you and that for you he in turn went on that cross doing that? And then for you he went in that grave and for you he was resurrected. Did you not know that? Do you not see the beauty in that? Do you not see how great it is that God gave his only begotten son to die for you? Don't you know that? And Jude wanted to write a letter apparently that sounded something like that. I don't know exactly, but I can only imagine as he picked up that quill, his, his hand just kept, kept quivering. And with every stroke, he, he does like I do. I'm dyslexic and my handwriting's poor. You've been, been introduced to both of those this morning. Uh, but as he begins to move that quill, he just can't get the letters to form. And so he does what we would do. He kind of wads that paper up and he throws it in the can. He starts again. He, he grabs the quill and that one again and that one again. And finally, he drops his quill and with an overwhelming sensation within him through the inspiration of God, he says, you know what? I just can't write that. I can't write to them about the common salvation. I can't write to them about the wonderful gift that Jesus offered on the cross. I can't write to them about the potential for they themselves and all men everywhere to be saved. I can't do that. Why? Because there's something that is so much more urgent. Something that matters in the moment so much more. And what's that subject? In short, earnestly contending for the faith. He basically says, I want to write a letter about finishing. But instead, I must write a letter about fighting. And he encourages his brethren to stand up and fight. And in many areas and many times, and I've heard these accusations, I've heard these attacks, I've heard preachers or teachers or whomever, somebody says, you know what, I, I used to, I heard this exact quote, fellas, I really used to like our preacher, you know, our preacher. I really used to like our preacher. 
I mean, he used to, he used to we'd, go, we'd go to services and he would, he would bring a lesson straight out of the pages of God's Word and be so inspiring and, you know, so motivating. And, and I'd leave there just happy as I could be. But lately, he's gotten to where all he does is talk about sin. And all he does is talk about immorality. And all he does, uh, they, they quoted by saying that he's just meddling. And I leave there now and I feel so beat up. And I feel like I feel like I'm taking a whipping every Sunday when I leave there, and I, I don't know why he's doing that. I can't understand it. And somebody hears him talking, and they step in and say, "I feel the same way." You know, I don't know what's gotten into him. I don't know. Why can't he just talk about Jesus every Sunday? Why can't he focus all his time just just on the love of God? He just keeps coming back. You know, he had that lesson about drinking and the one about uh, dancing and he had the one about uh, smoking and he had the one about, and, and they go on and I'm pornography. He had all these lessons. Man, that ain't got nothing to do with me. I'm really about tired of hearing it. Let's talk about Jesus. Is there a sense in which I might agree? Yes. But. I read a letter like the one that Jude writes here where Jude says, I wanted to talk about the common salvation among the brethren. But instead, I've got to stand down and earnestly contend for the faith. Contending for the faith is more than contending for the gospel. It's more than contending for broadly the truth. It's about contending against the immoral things in this life because it doesn't matter. So what if I preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which we must. But so what if I do that 39 weeks out of the year? If the other time that I spend, I do not spend on teaching someone how to live and how to stay faithful and what to do and what not to do, it's possible to still fall short. Paul, speaking about himself, said that he was willing to preach the whole, what's that? Counsel of God. Did Paul ever touch on issues that were controversial? That were at times offensive? That were at times not taken well? Yeah, a lot of Paul's preaching resulted in him being done what way? Jerked up by the nap of the neck and thrown out of the city. Because he preached Jesus. You say, yeah, but he had always preached Jesus. Oh, yes, he did. He preached Jesus. Because what he preached was Jesus and his standards. What he preached was Jesus and his love that extended to so far, so far of a distance that Jesus was willing to talk about hell. That Jesus was willing to rebuke sin. That Jesus was willing to point out those who were living immoral lives. Yeah. And so look at here in the text what, what starts to happen. Of course, this is the beginning of it. We, we're calling the address. Verses 1 and 2. Here's what we have. I'm looking at King James text here. Um, there are some differences. I'll try to point some of those out if you're using the New King James or some other. We'll get to that because there are a few places where other translations are probably clearer or if not, at least give us some insight. But I've got the King James in front of me. 
Here's what the scripture says. Verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, to them sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Now, there's actually a lot of information there. First off, who claims to be the penman of this book? Straight out of there, it's obvious. What Jude? There, there are multiple Judes. Jude is most likely the shorter version of Judas. So if, it, if you say, well, Jude is the same as Judas, who wrote this book? Or who didn't write this book? Judas Iscariot didn't write this book. Now we can be sure because when you properly date this book, it dates somewhere in the... My, my disclaimer is that word somewhere. It dates somewhere in the range of 60 to 65 Watch this. Ish A.D. Why couldn't Judas Iscariot have been the penman of this book? He'd been dead over 30 years. He's gone. He didn't write it. So we have a few other Jews that are available. There is a Judas, Jude, Judas, the apostle. It is at least possible that he writes this book. Possible. Many of our New Testament letters or books are written by whom? Apostles. Not likely him either. The way that Jude seems to specify himself here, and this is just subjection, but I think it's the way I would tend to lean. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of whom? James. Now, who would we suppose James is? Uh, half-brother of Christ, the most likely penman of the book of James, as we might call it. If I was the half-brother of Christ, the brother of James, why wouldn't I claim Jesus? This is supposition right here. Why would I not? If my half-brother was Jesus himself, Jesus called the Christ, why would I not claim him? in writing a letter like this? Is it out of shame? You better do this. Probably, and this is just suggesting, probably he did not want to be seen as being boastful. Now what do we know about the relationship? And, and Jesus is listed as having four brothers. They're named out. Judas, Jude, James, Simon, What's the other one? I just lost it. He ran away. There's four brothers, and there are sisters. By sisters, what does that imply? At least two. So just doing that math, if he's got four brothers, two sisters, that, that brings itself to six. You add Jesus in the household, that's seven. You add Mary and Joseph, that's nine people in a household. How many of you have nine siblings? Not many in the room right now. There are a few of us who had, our parents had nine or something like that, or maybe grandparents even more likely. A few have nine siblings. How would you feel if one of those nine siblings was Jesus the Christ? Let me ask this. What does the scripture say about his siblings and their trust that Jesus was the Christ and Messiah? What do they think about him in young adulthood, apparently? They didn't quite 
believe that. It seems that Mary trusted that from the beginning. Okay, she just she had to wait it out to see it develop. Seems that she trusted from the beginning. We have no information about Joseph's perspective other than him as being recorded, for example, Matthew, Matthew's account, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. He accepted Mary in spite of the fact that she was pregnant of the Holy Ghost. But we don't have any other record about how Joseph ever reacted toward Jesus, what he thought about him, whatever. We don't even know what happened to Joseph after the time Jesus was recorded as being about 12 years old coming in and out of the temple. But what we do know about his siblings is that they did not really get it to a point. But by the time of writing, guess who gets it? We know for sure Jude does. This being the half-brother of Jesus, most likely we also know James does. James, the brother of Jesus, held a position in some place. Where was that? Church in Jerusalem. It seems he, had, he was called a pillar. What exactly that specifies, he was held a position. He at least was active, you might call it that, in the church of Jerusalem. So we know there had been at some point some realization slash conversion of some of these siblings, maybe more, but at least these, that of Jude and that of James. Now, why exactly that Jude wouldn't just come out and say, look, I'm Jesus' brother, y'all need to pay attention. Why wouldn't he say that? Perhaps it was because he didn't want to uh, come across as being prideful. Perhaps he didn't want to seem to be um, boastful about that. Perhaps he, like many of us, understood that others wouldn't think it mattered. You know, we live in a society where there's a lot of uh, celebrity, celebrityism, is that a real word? You know, if you found out that my brother was, and I'm just using the only, I hear this in my house all the time because the camera watches back, if you found out my brother was LeBron James, that you never knew that, and all of a sudden you found that out, somebody might come up and say, man, tell you what, I knew I liked you. When when you going over for for his birthday dinner? When just let me know. I, I, but other people might say, "What does that mean?" Because if you saw me handling a basketball, you say that don't matter. Don't make a lick of difference. Because in some situations or most situations, what your siblings are have nothing to do with you. But James is not ashamed of Jesus because he says what. Or Jude. Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Some translations say a bond servant of Jesus Christ. James says, I've gotten to a place in my life where I'm in a proverbial sense on my knees ready to do the bidding call of Jesus Christ. Even though maybe growing up, he got tired of hearing, you know what? Jude, why don't you clean your room like Jesus? You know, Jude, look at this report card. You know, Jesus, he always got straight A's. What's wrong with you, Jude? Why are you talking back? I doubt any of that actually happened. But that's the way we would feel toward a sibling who for some reason, got suddenly put up on a pedestal and became popular or well-known or famous or, or was called the Son of God. But he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Then he says, the brother 
he admits there the brother of James. Well, James is a pillar in the church. James, uh, earlier than this, James's book, James' epistle is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. So James has already had a circulated letter of the New Testament being put out. And then he says, the, sir, the brother of James, to them that are, and I've got these words highlighted, number one, to them that are sanctified, By the Godfather and preserved, that's the second word, and called. Sanctified, preserved, and called. Does anyone have a translation that says anything other than sanctified? I think some of you do. That, that's the meaning of it, which we'll discuss. Verse 1, anybody have anything different than sanctified? Some translations, which are actually fairly accurate in doing so, have translated the word sanctified. I, I say translated. They just find a whole, whole different word there. And that of beloved. Now, is it better to be beloved of the Father or sanctified of the Father? The answer is this. <laughs> I'm thrilled that He loves me. I'm happy that He's brought me and set me apart from the world. The equality of it. Now, taking the word sanctified of the King James and some other translations, uh, that word meaning to be set apart, hagios, uh, could be interpreted as holy. However, to say he's holy would not give us the instance of it and the exact reference to it. To be sanctified, to be set apart, to be drawn out of something. And so the first group to whom James is Jude, I keep saying James, I'm so used to James, uh, I'm teaching James in another congregation about 40 miles from here, and it's difficult to swap up. But the first instance that Jude brings out is he says, I'm writing to those who are sanctified. Secondarily, he says, I'm writing to those as well who are preserved. Anybody have a different word than preserved? Probably starts with a K, if you do. K-E-P-T, kept. Preserved. Kept. Uh, some of you ladies or, or some of your ladies' mothers or you know, whatever, my mother has done some of this through the years, have that, had that process where they can something, right? I don't know how that worked, but somehow or another, uh, they can take something that, generally speaking, would spoil on the counter within a few days, and they can package it and do certain tricks and sprinkle this and, and lock down that. And, and that can... It's a glass jar that somehow can, but that canning process can do what to something? Preserve it. And I don't know how your mother deals with you. I can tell you how mine has dealt with me in the past. You'll get that jar, that can, out of the you know, back, back side of the laundry room, bottom shelf, fell over behind it, and water's dripped on it, and you pull it out and say, Ugh. She said, It's fine. Mama, it says 1973. It'll be all right. I preserve that. That's a silly illustration, but that's how reliable the preservation of God is. God has the ability, and, and kind of like, kind of sort of like, you remember how we talked for so long about Paul addressing Philemon, how Paul kind of started out just giving them a little, a little bit of pick me up and, and telling them how good how good Philemon was and, and how wonderful Philemon was. You know, we're best, best buds. And, 
and all that. And then he got down to telling Philemon what he would have to do with Onesimus, and that was kind of dreadful to consider. And, but he kind of got them prepped. He talks to these people, and he says, Look, I'm writing you because I know you're sanctified. You're beloved of God. I know for a fact that you've been preserved, you've been kept, and I know for a fact that you have been, the next one here, is called. What does it mean to be called of God? How can someone obtain the calling of God today? He's going to get it through this. And it implies that someone has, has heard the words, taken heed to the call of God. And it's through studying, it's through examination, it's through looking to God's Word, it's through seeing God's Word as God's Word. You want to put in your margin, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, uh, Paul writes to Thessalonians there and basically commends them because when they heard the Word of God, they heard it as that and not as the Word of men. So Jude here says, I'm writing to those of you who are sanctified, those of you who are in that sense preserved, and those of you who are called. Now, take that in your mind and put it at the end of the letter because when he gets down to the last two verses, 24 and 25, he's going to turn around and say the same thing in different terms. He's going to encourage them on the front. He's going to encourage them on the back. But in the middle, he's going to lay it down. Any of you ever talked about a preacher and said he really can shuck the, shuck the corn? Jude, Jude like no other. Yes, ma'am. How did you call? Called, really, I just used the word itself. Just being called to be drawn out. It's, it's to hear God, to hear what God requires, and then in turn to follow it, to do it. So no real definition given there much. But that's it. To hear the word of God, yes, and to do it. So he's writing to those who are sanctified, those who are preserved or kept, and those who are called. Then the next part of this in that address, and we're trying to just finish the address, he says, mercy and peace and love be multiplied. How does the Apostle Paul generally say something like Jude says here? He'll talk about grace and peace. And oftentimes love. Interesting here, Jude says, mercy and peace and love be multiplied. When we think about mercy, generally speaking, you're talking about giving something something that they have never deserved. And in the context, and we're not nearly far enough to, in, uh, to, to really get a grasp of this yet, although I know your students of the Bible, you read it yourself plenty of times. But in the context, as Jude is about to have to lay out in this argument here, and then finally the admonition on the other side, Jude is about to lay things out in such a way that he has to remind these people that you already know this. You already understand this. You already understand this is the proper way of living in view of what God desires. But you're going to need some mercy that not only has been given to you, that you have to apply to other people. If we go to someone who is blatantly living in sin, not according to our standards, but according to God's, what ought we to bring to them first and foremost? 
some, some level of mercy, compassion, love, empathy, sympathy. We've got to come to them at some place to say, look, I understand where you are. God knows where you are. But I also want to help you know where God wants you to be. And we don't come with that with, with vengeance or, or anger or defiance. We come before them that with mercy and love and compassion and such. So we're not very far into the book, but that's, that's okay. We'll try again another time. Any questions, comments about the name Jude? That's about what we've covered. <laughs>